what's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Almost 11 months ago, the phone number 988 launched as a new crisis number available to all U.S. landline and cell phone users that accesses over 200 local and state-funded crisis centers. The number is meant to be an easy-to-remember way to access mental health support. It also wrapped in the former 10-digit role of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline with a shorter and easier-to-remember phone number. Call volume has increased dramatically as compared to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, but as a corollary, so have forced psych- psychiatric holds. The call centers are boldly advertised as confidential, but call centers actually sometimes share people's information with 911 and police agencies. We'll spend this next segment exploring the relationship between force, emergency mental health care, and the new 988 crisis hotline with Rob Wipon a journalist who writes frequently on the interfaces between psychiatry, civil rights, policing, surveillance, and privacy. He's also the author of a new book, Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships. Rob has been writing about the new 988 hotline for the web magazine Mad in America. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. We're going to focus most of our conversation on the relationship of of force in mental health care responses in 988 in particular, but I'd like to start out with just some clarity around the new 988 hotline. Rob, what is it, how is it different from the former National Suicide Prevention Lifeline? And before we get into the force part of the conversation, how are people actually using it as a resource? How does it work? Well, it's not that different. I mean, essentially, it was a, a direct transition. They've just expanded their mission, as it were, to be a more, rather than just a suicide prevention lifeline, uh, now they advertise themselves as a, as a broader sort of a resource, uh, mental health support, and, and referrals in communities. But in truth, they always did that. It was a very, a very large portion of what they did before as well. So from that standpoint, there hasn't been a, a large change in their, in their policies or practices. Or, or what they're doing. And it seems like call volume has actually gone up. How is it actually working on that front? Yeah. So, you know, they're certainly more popular than before. As you said, the 988 number is easy to remember, and there's, you know, an ungodly amounts of funding going into this for federal and state levels, and and so there's been more advertising and so forth. So we've seen their their numbers double over the last uh, last ten months, essentially from the prior year. They're on track to fully double for the year, and because they have this uh, intervention policy, which is that. Uh, if they decide that somebody might be at some sort of risk of potentially harming themselves, taking their own lives in the relatively near future, uh, due to that policy, they then will contact 911 and initiate some sort of call trace if they don't know the location of the, the person already and, and send out an ambulance and or police to take the person to a crisis center or psychiatric hospital uh, forcibly. And that person will then be detained until an assessment can be done, and then you know things play out in different ways from there. So, because they have this policy in place, just as their uh, call volumes have increased, so also have these kinds of interventions. And so, I put a number uh, based on uh, the statistics they gave me. It's all very secretive. They don't release this data. They don't talk about it very much. They don't really like to advertise that this is what they do. 
but it looks like as many as 81,000 people have had this happen to them over the past 10 months. Uh, we're on track for 100,000 people this year. So this is not a small number of people. It's a relatively small percentage of the overall number, but you know, millions of people are calling these lines. So that's a lot of people that are getting subjected to these kinds of interventions. Yeah, I want to talk about those numbers in just a few minutes. But before we get there, 988 is essentially advertised as a confidential emergency mental health support line. I want to talk about the confidentiality side of it. Your research suggests that it's actually not necessarily confidential. And you were just talking about that with some of the relationship between 988 calls, the more emergency 988 calls and 911 calls that 988 makes. Can you talk us through what's going on there and, you know, put confidentiality at the center of that? Yeah, it's very concerning because if you even go today to the the 988 website, you will see their privacy disclosure. And there's really only like one line in it that kind of vaguely says, well, under emergency circumstances, we reserve the right to uh, contact a third party. And that, that's the extent, really, of the, the, the disclosure. But the reality is, as I just described, no, they, they have a, a very broad and robust policy for doing forced interventions upon people, for revealing your personal information. And the way this actually plays out is, yeah, they can show up at your workplace, uh, they show up at schools, they show up wherever that person is calling from, because it's a very uh, effective geolocation tool in most cases, uh, regardless of the kind of device you're using or how you're contacting them, and, and take people to hospitals. So it's an incredible breach of people's privacy in a situation where they're not being told that this can happen, or they're even being deliberately misled, as I, uh, you know, that's how I would term it, uh, that these, the advertising clearly suggests that this would not happen, could not happen, and then even when they talk about it, they imply that, oh, it's just so rare, and only in these very extreme situations, but it's not that, and their own policy makes it very clear that it's a, it's a fairly large number, it's over 2% of the calls, and that's, that's not a small number, that yeah, that adds up to this 81,000. So, yeah, I have a big concern. And also it's the impact of that breach of privacy. Many people that I've talked with experience a profound sense of betrayal. So on top mm. of uh, the, the, the trauma that might be involved in being uh, confronted by security guards and police and then security guards at the hospital and, and possible assessment as so mentally ill to be detained even longer, you know, all of that trauma, they have this sense of like, oh, that was the only place I felt safe calling in my life, and now that's gone. Now, now I have no one I can call uh, safely and anonymously. And, and I, so I, really, even when you try to sell this as, oh, we're, we were saving that person's life uh, in this particular moment, well, yeah, but what have you done for them over the long term? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, I have a lot of concerns with that. Yeah, let's take a little bit of a step back in the conversation. I just want to bring people into what 988 is and how it truly works. Can you walk us through what happens when you make that call? Yeah, on the other sure. line of, yeah. In an ideal scenario, you know, you call the, the number and, and they put you through a bit of a, depending on your manner of contact, they put you through a bit, a few standardized questions they have, like kind of how upset are you today, roughly where are you, because they might direct you to a call center in, in your area, things like that. And then 
you hopefully, ideally, after this automated uh, connection, get connected to a live person. And, and a lot of people do report, and there are studies that show that you have a 10 to 15-minute conversation, exchange of some kind, and, and people will feel better, like they got a bit of reassurance, uh, a personal connection of some kind, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing. But then we have this this other level of it that it enters into it. And one of their policies is that within the first five minutes, the call attendant, the person responding uh, to the call, has to initiate a suicide screening tool. So they ask them standardized questions like, are you feeling suicidal? If you were going to take your own life, how might you do it? And and based on how you answer some of these questions, they get a sense of what your risk level appears to be. And then on that basis, they may conduct an intervention. And so these call attendants are required to initiate this very quickly. And it's very odd when you look at it, when you see it. A lot of people go, it felt strange. It felt like all of a sudden I was talking to a chat bot or something who was asking me these very automated rote questions. And it actually can really throw off the connection for people as well uh, when you see that and you don't understand what's going on. Well, that's what's going on. So I read about two pretty terrifying reports about cops responding to people who were suicidal just this week in Maryland, a man who called a mental health crisis line. It very well could have been 988, but reports didn't specify what number he called. He called and said he was suicidal. He said he was intoxicated. He said he had a gun. A SWAT team ended up at his house, and after a 10-hour standoff, they killed him. Um, In Florida... In a separate situation, a mother called 911 because her grown son was suicidal. Police showed up. The situation escalated. Her son, a grown man, fired a gun, and the police ended up shooting and killing him. These are obviously terrible and tragic situations. They seem to show how police are not equipped to handle mental health crises. How common are these kind of scenarios? These are the most extreme. We're also going to go back to talk about uh forced psychiatric holds. So we know that uh, wellness checks, so people who are undergoing some sort of emotional uh, crisis of some kind, are the, the most common group to suffer police shootings in America. So we know that statistic. We don't know how many of those are coming about as a result of people actually reaching out, not even to 911 or to police directly, but rather to these kinds of mental health hotlines that are, you know, in conducting call tracing. But so we don't really know how common it is, but it's common enough that you've heard about it. I've heard everybody who looks into this at all hears about it. And what I find very concerning is that you don't see engagement from the 988 administrators on any of these issues. They simply pretend it's not happening, If even if when I've asked them out and out, do you have a comment on this one or that one where we directly know it was caused by you? I've been talking to a person who called your line, and this is what happened to them. They are traumatized. Do you have a comment on that? There's been no response at all. Not even a, well, we don't like to comment on private situations. They won't talk about it generally. So I find that a real concern, that they're not engaging with this publicly in a way to go, yeah, we recognize this is a problem. We're, we're 
longer really working on it. The extent of what they say is, well, we think it's a problem that police respond. And I think it's unfortunate in a way that police get blamed for this. I mean, obviously, I don't want to see police shootings, but they aren't trained for it. They don't want this responsibility in most cases, but we're forcing them to do it. And these kind of mental health hotlines are basically compelling them to respond. So really, we got to back up to what is, where is this attitude coming from within the mental health system? The, this rise, as I discussed in my book, of attitudes of like, oh, this is a good thing. Yeah, let's forcibly intervene on somebody who's just in emotional distress because it'll be good for them. And it's not. It's often a very threatening and very scary and ultimately very dangerous thing to put people through. And we as a society need to back up from this attitude and recognize that, in a sense, we're kind of blaming police for what we ourselves are kind of compelling them to do. And of course, I mean, obviously, police can always, again, they can behave better in these situations, and I'd like to see them do that, definitely. But hey, let's, let's also take on some of our own responsibility here. Which would also, of course, require funding other services, alternatives to policing as emergency responders, right? Yeah, um, and there is a move towards that within the 988 line and, and in communities around the country recognizing let's send out social workers, mobile mental health crisis teams, and that's better. But people need to know that a lot of times these are actually accompanied by police officers still, and these mobile teams also... Uh, force people into psychiatric hospitals at a fairly fairly high rate as well. So it's not a complete solution that way either. Mm -hmm. So Rob, we just have about two minutes left. I wanted to ask, in your latest article, you wrote that in 988's first full year of operation, its call centers are on pace to, quote, incarcerate nearly 100,000 people. When people hear about incarceration, we're often thinking about people who were arrested for breaking the law or allegedly breaking the law. Talk about why that language is important to use for psychiatric holds. So people recognize that this is not a helping intervention in most cases, and that people are actually being detained against their will. Now, these may be short detentions, really short sometimes, and sometimes not, so we don't really know the details of what's happening in these cases. But I put a number to it so that people pay attention. This is a large number of people, and they are essentially being taken by force into a circumstance where they're being held against their will. And so we need to use a term like incarceration or detention to highlight that that's what this is. This is not a, oh, you know, we really want to help you. How can we help you? Gee, what would you like? What might, what might work better for you? That, these are not the conversations. They're like, we know this is what we're going to do. Shut up, essentially, and we're going to do this. And hopefully somewhere along the line you do encounter a person with compassion, but that doesn't always happen. And, in fact, in a lot of cases it does not happen. It's, this is not a compassionate form of intervention. And in 30 seconds, Rob, in your ideas, you've done a lot of deep dives into this. What would a mental health and suicide support line hotline actually need to be well-equipped to take care of the needs of people calling without forced incarceration? How could that actually look? And you've got about 30 seconds. I think you need one of two things. One is you do like some warm lines do, which is you never trace calls. You make that very clear. This is confidential, anonymous, no matter what. And if you're not doing that, you disclose it openly. Hey, look, if we're really worried about you, here are the situations under which we might send out uh, an, am an ambulance or police. And so people know right up front that that's the case. And then I think basically it's you've really solved most of the problem. And we are going to have to leave it there. Rob, thank you so much for joining us this morning. 
All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fortnite's Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>